morning. How are you? Just want to let you know, Rob, somewhere back here in the back row is a little one over there who really likes you. So I'm hoping I can keep up the trend. But uh, Revelation chapter 2, would you open there in your Bibles? Please bring your Bibles to church. Uh, if you don't have one, there's one on the chairs in front of you. An app will work also. Uh, but to be familiar with your Bible is incredibly important to this journey of faith that we walk. I've encouraged, been encouraging, especially men that went to the men's retreat, like bring a journal, take some notes, especially as we're in the book of Revelation, as there is just so much going on and so much to learn from it. So quick introduction, if you're here for the first time, I'm glad you're here. I hope you fill out a connection card. I'd love to connect with you throughout the week. Uh, just see how we as a church can serve you and care for you. Uh, but if you've missed the introduction uh, to this book the last couple weeks, let me give you what I think are just some of the most important things. One theologian said, I've been trying to source the author of this. It was quoted by somebody else, and, and I can't find the original source from it. But one theologian said, there is nothing new in Revelation. Now, here's what he means by that that the images and the things that we're being taught, the theology that exists in Revelation, exists in all of Scripture. There's actually nothing new there, right? Now, the way it's put together and how it's told to the churches is new. But the imagery, the doctrine, the theology, it all exists in Scripture. And so take that one step further to, to hear that idea. There's not really anything new here. And when, when there is something new, Jesus has a tendency to say, hey, listen, this is what that means, right? But the images that we're going to get into after the beginning of the year especially will lean heavy into Old Testament imagery. The images in Isaiah, we've already seen imagery out of Daniel. The images in Ezekiel, when Ezekiel sees the throne of God, when Isaiah sees the throne of all those images are brought to us again in Revelation. And so Revelation puts together the imagery in, in ways where it's all now in one place. But the doctrine is the same, the theology is the same. When people get all the way to the last book of the Bible, into the last three chapters of that book, and then create new things out of that, that's where this book becomes really un, not understandable and off track. Nothing new here, just put together in a brand new way, kind of sandwiched down together for what the churches need to hear. So this is a letter written to seven churches. We're going to look at two of those churches today. We look at the imagery used is either explained by Revelation or is already explained primarily in the Old Testament. It is also highly consistent with Jesus' messages, with Jesus speaking his teachings in the Gospels. We'll see that today too. So we've seen a lot of that. Old Testament and gospel teaching in the, in the introduction, some of the same last week as we leaned heavier into the Daniel 7 imagery used as the Son of Man for Jesus. Today, as we get into the first two churches, we're going to see as Jesus revealing himself, and the letter is to all those seven churches, but he's going to call out and speak to each church individually. Notice again the emphasis of a local body. Jesus is speaking through a messenger to John, to the seven churches, but he's speaking to them individually and corporately. But the, 
the emphasis of being a part of a local church is all throughout Scripture. Whether you were a part of an Old Testament temple or synagogue in the New Testament, a part of a local church, the life together that we live is unique to any other relationships. And this is where Jesus continues to reveal himself to local churches, to us in the context of the local church, not to us and our Bibles out in the wilderness all alone. Yes, you have the Holy Spirit. Yes, you can do that. But Jesus continues to speak to churches, local churches, where you can actually live it out together. So here's a main idea for today. Jesus speaks to the churches. Jesus reveals himself uniquely to each local church and speaks to them according to their particular needs. Now, let me explain that before I get to that last line. Jesus is going to write little introductions to each of the seven churches. He's going to reveal character attributes about himself to that church that relate to their local predicament. The situation they're in, parts of his character is going to speak to. So it's that last line. Jesus is, the, is who we need when we need him. Jesus is who we need when we need him. Let me give you an example. If you're getting into the holidays right now, and you've recently lost loved ones this year, and you're entering into a new season where someone's going to be missing at the Thanksgiving table or Christmas for the first time or the second time, we don't need to hear about Jesus, the marriage counselor. We need Jesus, the grief counselor, right? And if you are struggling in your marriage or parenting or something over here, we don't need Jesus who comforts the sorrowful. We need Jesus who gets how hard it is for me to be in a marriage or for you. Not, now, my wife's perfect, so <laughs> before I land myself in trouble, right? Your marriage, however, may have struggles. All right. Jesus is who we need when we need him specific to our needs. And that's what we're going to see. We're going to do the first half of two today, second half of two next week, and then all of chapter three in, in two weeks as he speaks to the seven churches. So Revelation chapter 2, starting in verse 1, says this, to the angel of the church in Ephesus write. So let's pause there. Remember from the last two weeks, the description of Jesus who holds the seven stars in his right hand. And then we see the Jesus who is standing among the lampstands. And Jesus says, now this is a bit of new language and defines it for us that the stars he holds in his right hand are the angels to the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Notice again the emphasis of each independent or interdependent local church. Notice the relationship. And what we looked at last week is Jesus stands in the midst of the churches. Jesus is with us, the church. Now here he's saying, I also hold the seven stars in my right hand. I hold the messengers or angels to those seven churches in my right hand, like I keep them. Now, angel is a unique word in the New Testament. There are two words used in the New Testament to, that, we trans, that can be translated messenger. One is apostle and one is angel. You can see the problem already. When we think of apostle, we think of an office, a position of authority. That was true. I try and kind of delineate between that, like capital A apostle, like we're talking about one of the 12 sent ones, you know, 
But apostle actually means to be sent from, a messenger who is sent from someone with a message. Angelos, the Greek word for angel, is the same thing. It is literally translated messenger, but it's where we get our word angel from. So you have two choices today. You can pick either one you want. It could be a spiritual being, an angel here. I'll tell you why I'm not sure that's true. Why would Jesus need to tell John to write it down for an angel? Not sure. Does that make sense? So I have that question. But I'll also say this. The word angel is used about 70, 70, 70 different times in the book of Revelation. In fact, in all five of John's writings, never once does he use the word angel as messenger. So I have a case for this, and I have a case for this, and I don't really care where you land today. Either one, what you need to hear. By the way, the other option that some theologians would write about is a human messenger, like the pastor to that church. You can see why I'm hesitant to say that out loud. Okay. So either it's an angel, like we think of an angel, or it was the pastors of these seven churches. One thing kind of pushes me one direction, the other kind of pushes me another direction. I don't think I need to know the answer here. I don't think you need to know the answer for sure, but you need to hear, there's two ways to hear this. Either Jesus says, I hold your pastor in my hand like I protect him, or I hold the angel that's in charge of your church, whatever that would mean, and I, and I guard him, I protect him, right? Either way, you can go with either one. I hold the seven stars in my right hand. That's what Jesus says. I am sovereign over church leadership and care. That's what he's saying. No matter which track you go with, spiritual angel or messenger human, right? Either way, Jesus is saying, I sovereignly hold them in my hand. So to the angel of the church in Ephesus, that's where we are. We're, writing, we're reading now an introduction or a special call out for the church in Ephesus. And so let's start again. Verse 1, to the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. So again, now we're repeating descriptions or parts of the description of Jesus from chapter 1. Right? It says a list of these things, a golden sash around his check feet of burnished bronze, eyes like flaming fire. From his mouth comes a two-edged sword. He holds the seven stars in his right hand. He stands among the lampstands. All these things that are told to us. Now two are chosen to be revealed to the church in Ephesus. These two things are not random. They are particular to the need for the church in Ephesus. And we're going to see a couple different things as we move to the church in Smyrna. Jesus is defining himself, describing himself, portraying himself to this church in ways they need to hear. You with me? Specific to them. All right. So to Ephesus. Here we go. Write this down, he says. Verse 2. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not. I found them to be false. So here's what Jesus says. He begins with some strengths for the Ephesian church. Will you close that door, please, John? So he starts out with some strengths to the Ephesian church, right? Here is who you are. You have endured many trials. You have tested those who have come to you to teach you, and you found them to be false. Here's what's some really good news about that. We get a lot of writing in the New Testament 
about the church in Ephesus. In Acts, the Apostle Paul plants the church in Ephesus, spends three years there establishing this church. He plants a church in the middle of the hub for the worship of Artemis, the goddess Artemis, or Diana, right, if you're a Wonder Woman fan. Anyhow, so uh, plants a church in the middle of this where the people in the community all make their money off making idols of Artemis. And his church has such a huge impact on the community that the people who make those idols are going out of business and it starts a riot. Again, pastor goals. I want to start a riot because we're changing the community so well. Some of you think I'm kidding. The rest of you know me. Right. So uh, <laughs> then we get the letter to Ephesus, right, where Paul is writing back to the church that he planted. Then we get two other letters written to, to Timothy, 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy. Well, he's pastoring Ephesus, and then Jesus speaks to John and tells him, I want revelation written to these seven churches, one of them being Ephesus. One of the cool things that we get to see is throughout their history, they have battled false doctrine. They have battled people coming in and teaching them different things. And by the time we get here, they are successfully defending clear doctrine, right? They have established a clear doctrine, a good theology, a biblical theology that is Christ-centered and true. And, it's, and they've heard the cautions. If you remember, before Revelation, we were in 1 Timothy, and there was these doctrinal battles that were going on. These false teachers had come in. Paul is encouraging Timothy, fight the good fight. Hey, some of these things need to be brought before the church so they know what's going on. Your elders need to be skilled in the word of God that they might be able to teach and refute false doctrine. So by the time we get to the end of the first century, roughly around 90 AD, when John writes Revelation, Ephesus, here's what it says again, I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance. We'll come back to patient endurance. How you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles. Remember, apostle means messenger, right? Those who have come with a different message. So who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. So their strengths are this. You are a hardworking church. You are working hard at the kingdom, right? You have struggled with false teachers, but you have refuted false doctrine, right? You have pushed out these who have come and said, listen, I come with this new teaching or this better teaching or this correction of your teaching. And he says, no, you've known better. So he gives them credit for who they have become as the church. Verse three, I know you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. So enduring and bearing for Christ's name, right? Clearly, they are suffering under some trials as well. Maybe it's this repeated attack on their doctrine. Maybe they stand so exclusive, so uh, separate or other than the culture that they live in, that they are kind of enduring those battles. We'll see a little more of that in Smyrna, some specifics. But in the church in Ephesus, they are unique enough to where there is persecution for Christ's name, that the church is patiently enduring. Remember what John said when he wrote this introduction to all the churches before he started to call them out. Just last week, he says, I'm your brother in the patient endurance in the kingdom and the tribulation. I am your brother 
in the patient endurance that is Christianity, that is following Jesus. I'm with you in this. And again, I say this, and there's something that needs to be said here. Remember, this book wasn't written to us. This book was written to seven churches, a letter to seven churches, real churches for their day. That's what's most important for you to hear. That almost everything that is talked about in this book happens in their day. Almost everything. And that it's written to them about that. When we read it, we have this tendency to insert ourselves in it. Oh, Jesus is saying this to me like it's, gonna, like it's my future. No, it's their future that's already come and gone. I read it. I get to learn from it. Okay, well, how did they endure when I need to endure? What does it look like? Well, who is Jesus to them? Well, Jesus is the same Jesus, right? So I learn from them in the ways like we learn from history. I don't read myself into, you know, the 15th century. I learn from the 15th century so that I can learn something today. And this is the divine version of that, the inerrant version of that, the, the God-inspired capturing of this timeless message for us. But it's written to these churches that are really going to struggle in their day and are patiently enduring. We learn from that, but we need to hear that it happened to them. So verse 4, but, always an important word in Scripture, I will leave the Sir Mix-a-Lot reference out. Thank you. All right. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. So what was the love they lost? And here's the simplest way. Remember, Revelation is consistent with the Old Testament and the teachings of the Gospels. Jesus clear. And it says that in the opening verses of chapter 1. They were going to bear witness to Scripture, to the testimony of Jesus, the Gospels, right? And to what John sees. That's what his job is, to bear witness to those three things. So we'll go to the Gospels for this. So in Matthew, it says this, And Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. And the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus goes on to tell this Jewish religious leader that all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Love God, love one another. Love God, love your neighbor. To love God with all your, whole, your heart, soul, mind, strength, to love your neighbor as yourself. Now, commentators have wrestled with, have they lost their love for God? Have they lost their love for their neighbor? I'm going to say both. Here's why. Here's what I believe they have grown to love, and the scripture bears it out. They have grown to love being right more than being loving. There's a difference. You see, it is very unloving for me to allow false doctrine to creep in, Right? But it is not loving of me to guard our doctrine in such a way where I'm unloving to people, right? Where I treat people who make mistakes or say wrong things or do evil things, where I treat them in unloving ways. So we don't need to compromise truth in order to gauge the way we treat one another. A recent conversation I had, uh, a family was just super critical of kind of everything, just kind of everything. They love Jesus, good family, super critical, okay? Everybody outside this small view 
It's just wrong and evil and name-calling and all this kind of stuff, right? And it's just not loving. Now, I love their guarding of doctrine. I don't even find a lot of places where I disagree. But it's the assigning of, oh, that person's a heretic because they said this, or that person is not a Christian because they said this. And I'm like, man, I, I can disagree with that and still think they love Jesus because I am not so arrogant to believe that I have all my doctrine correct. I just don't know where I'm wrong or I'd fix it. But I assume I'm wrong somewhere, right? I mean, that's a fair assumption that we're all wrong somewhere, if not in a lot of places, but it doesn't mean I don't love Jesus, right? I will learn and grow for the rest of my life. But other people should be afforded that grace too. It doesn't mean I have to agree with them or accept them or have their teaching in our church, but does that mean they don't love Jesus? So losing our love for God and losing our love for one another, God's number one creation, and to trade that for a love of being right, you can see the problem. You can see how they were wrestling with bad doctrine and they were believing it and it was misleading people. We even saw that in 1 Timothy. And so you can see how that desire to course correct and, and figure out, hey, let's test this with everything else we know. Let's think theologically, something the American church does very little of today. Thinking theologically, how does this doctrine apply to this doctrine, how they all work together? How does everything from Genesis to Revelation tell one consistent story? How does the gospel impact this part of my life? So they were wrestling with that. They got beat up by it. And so as their passion for correct doctrine grew, you can see where they became kind of internal and guarded. You can imagine a scenario where they kind of got wounded by this, and so they kind of turned inward. Makes sense. Not godly, but it makes sense. It is godly to correct doctrine. It is not godly to turn inward towards the church. It's just, you know, what do they say? Us four and no more kind of thing, right? That we would then not love others. And see, if you love God, you will love his children, right? And, and, and if you love God, it will naturally flow that you will love those whom he loves. Especially the church, right? Those whom he loves and, and considers dear. So us joining in that, loving like God loves, loving God, loving our neighbor, that's where they've, they've lost their first love. He says, I have this against you in verse 4, that you've abandoned the love that you had at first. You had it, but you've abandoned it. I was just thinking, like, how are some ways that we love being right more than we love being godly, even with kind of a false belief that it is godly? So we have Christians, obviously, that want to be right about sexual ethics to the extent where they are unloving to people. You with me? We have Christians who want to be right about justice to the extent that they are unloving to people, right? We have people that want to be right about unborn life to the extent where they're unloving to people. See, I think all those things are really valuable. I think the way God created us in gender, created us in gender and sexuality matters. I think it matters deeply, and I think we're fighting the culture around us in this. But my desire is not to be right. My desire is to love people 
as I have a correct doctrine, as I have a biblical position, how am I loving towards those who it affects the most? Rather than isolate one group and not talk about another group. Okay. Unborn life. We did a podcast episode on this a little while back on uh, abortion. And, where I, and the, the question that was given by uh, one of the Reformed Doctrine students, uh, Corey's here, so you'll appreciate this, was can we advocate for the LGBT community was one question. Can we advocate for abortion? And so the answer was, well, I think abortion is unbiblical, right? Now, here's why. And we went through scripture where God calls that conceived life, life from long before we would call it life, like long before a heartbeat law would affect or anything else. He calls it life. He says he knit us together in our mother's womb. He said, I knew you before you were formed, right? All intimate words. In fact, that's in Hebrew. It's the yada. It's very, very intimate knowing. But my answer about the advocating for is, but here's the problem. We don't advocate for young women or any women in crisis pregnancy. We do very little of that. We're glad to champion something that is anti-abortion, but we're not so quick to jump in and get our hands dirty when a young woman is pregnant. You with me? So we love being right more than we love people. That's what they're doing. And it's easy to slip into just look at modern-day politics. Way more trying to be right than trying to be loving. On both sides of the aisle, right? Verse 5. Remember, therefore, where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. That verse should give you some chills. Let me read that again. Remember, therefore, where you, from where you have fallen. Remember who you were before Jesus. Repent and do the works you did at first. Remember, they were loving, but they'd lost their first love, the love they had at first. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, here's the part that should scare you and keep you up at night a little bit. Otherwise, I will come to you and remove your lampstand. What's the lampstand? The church. I will remove your church if you don't stop this. Your church will cease to exist if you can't get back to loving people. Loving God, loving people. You should hear that. It should, it should startle you a little bit. We'll come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. So what's the antidote for this unlovingness of this church? Well, repentance. I got a, a phone call or text or something over the weekend um, about a prayer request that we had had last week. By the way, yeah, if you guys checked in, man, by all means, put your prayer requests in there. We love praying for you. Our elders gather and pray for you. I pray for you. Prayer request came in about a family member and an issue. Uh, it happens to be something I've written about in the book that I wrote, and, and just the idea was remembering or the, the framework for dealing with people who sin differently than you do is remembering your sin the sin you came out of, the sin you might have today, or the sin you do have today. But remember your need for grace. Even as you speak truth to someone else about their circumstances, remember where you come from, right? Remember that so that you can be on a level playing field with someone who's not a Christian or not living it or whatever, but that you're eye to eye, not condescending. 
But that's important for us. Remember from where you've fallen, Jesus says to the church. So two ways to take this warning about the removal of the church. It's good to be doctrinally correct. Jesus wants that for us. It is wrong to be unloving to God and to people. But I'm going to center on people. I think the God part's obvious. And I think most likely their, problem, their issue was people. Just based on the circumstance, I can't prove that. But based on their circumstances of false teachers and problems and persecution, I'm going to say that was probably it. They probably got inward, guarded, kind of calloused, if you will. So it's wrong to be unloving to people. Jesus wants us to be loving. So verse 6, yet this you have, you hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. I don't care what you find online. No one really knows what this is. Lots of people say they know and they can support it in other places. We don't know. Honest theologians, some of the most brilliant minds will just tell you, we don't know, this one's kind of lost to history. That's okay. It fits their situation. Clearly, they've been fighting a specific false teaching. We have nothing else about that from the entire first century, nothing for most of the second century. So we really don't know. We just know that they had a specific doctrinal issue or orthopraxy or orthodoxy issue. I don't know, but they had it. And they hated the works of the Nicolaitans, and Jesus says, I hate them too. Got it, right? Good enough. Verse 7, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Listen to this. Let him hear what the Spirit, Holy Spirit's capitalized, right? What the Spirit says to who? Ah, to who? Church is plural. This little call-out introduction might be for Ephesus, but it's for everybody. If we're going to get anywhere, we're going to insert ourselves into the text, then we can do it here. What the Spirit says to the churches, this is true always. This is where we can go, okay, I need, I need to hear this, right? Listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. Yes, I'm speaking to your specific circumstance. Your specific, specific circumstance. Good thing I talk for a living. Your specific circumstances. And I'm revealing my particular attributes, Jesus says, to you that are important. Like I hold the messenger of your church in my hand. And I stand among the lampstand. You don't need to be unloving. You don't need to turn inward. You don't need to be guarded. I guard you. Guard your doctrine. Love God. Love others. Hear what the Spirit says to the churches now, plural. To the one who conquers, he says, verse 7, to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. To the one who conquers, now, first off, this phrase is going to repeat, be repeated to all seven churches. The idea of overcoming the world we live in is true for all of us. The idea that we will all suffer trial or tribulation is true for all of us. We don't need to wait for some specific season where things get tough. These people were giving their lives for their faith. It had already gotten tough. Remember, this was to them for their day. They were enduring tribulation. Remember what John says. I'm your brother in the patient endurance, in the kingdom, and in the tribulation. I'm your brother in it with you right now. So he calls, so the Spirit calls the churches to endure. To the one who conquers, he says, I will grant to eat of the tree of life. This is obviously a reference back to the gospel. That God created you and loves you. God designed you and has called you to be a particular way. That way is to be a worshiper of God, not just a singer of songs, but to live a life of worship. 
And then when you live that life of worship, bringing glory to God in all ways, you are living the way you are created to be. But we all know, just saying that out loud, we don't do well with that. And we mess that up daily. We turn and glorify ourselves, make our own decisions. We go our own way all the time. So sin has separated God from humanity. See, a holy God cannot be in the presence of sinful humanity. And so that sin separated us. But right there in the garden, as God goes to sinful humanity, after the fall of humanity into sin by their own choices, God goes to them and preaches the gospel that one day Jesus would come and conquer Satan's sin and death. And that he will have a momentary, what appears to be a loss, he'll die. But he will raise again to life, being victorious. And that God preaches the first gospel. It's not even to the human beings he preaches it. He proclaims that over Satan, that Satan's going to lose. That Jesus will have victory. And then God calls sinful humanity back through the gospel, living in faith towards that day when God conquers Satan through Jesus. So Jesus enters into human flesh. He lives the life you and I are called to live, but we choose to fail, choose to disobey. He lives the life that always brings glory to God. And then he takes that perfectly perfect, uh, perfectly holy, perfectly obedient, fully God and yet fully human life, and he sacrifices that life for you and for me. That he dies on a cross to cover our sin. He's laid in the ground to prove his death that overcomes our sin, that pays the penalty for our sin, and then resurrects three days later to prove his victory over Satan's sin and death. That Jesus is victorious. That Jesus has conquered. He didn't just conquer a way of life here, but he has conquered death and the penalty for sin. And then he ascends back to heaven, and he pours out his spirit upon us, something we get to celebrate today, as we get to baptize someone today. I'm excited for her. Yeah. That the promise of baptism is that indwelling Holy Spirit, power to live in a new life, power to overcome sin and grow in our faith. And then he promises, I'll return and make everything right one day. In the meantime, your challenge is to endure. Your challenge is to patiently endure. But for those who conquer, Jesus says, I will give the right to eat of the tree of life. The tree that was removed after sin was the tree that gives life eternally. So here's the passage, Genesis 3. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, talking to Father, Son, Spirit, talking one God, three persons, knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. So he takes the tree of life out. But he calls out to us, the church, and says to those who conquer, to those who endure, to those who make it all the way to the end. And by the way, the trick to making it all the way to the end is not being strong and white-knuckling it till the end but it's living in the spirit, living in the gospel. That when we surrender our lives to Jesus and we put Jesus as our focus point, then we endure. Because when Jesus is all that matters, then everything else fades away. So those who do that conquer, those who do that overcome. And those who do that will eat of the tree of life and live forever in the kingdom of God forever. And so he says that to the church. Listen, endure, conquer. Now, each church is going to have that same line. We'll see it in a minute. Verse 8, to the angel of the church in Smyrna, so same introduction, right? Right, these are the words of the first and last, 
the first and last who died and came to life. So same thing to the angel of the church, just like in Ephesus, right? Ephesus was fighting against false doctrine, and as an outcome, they were unloving. To Smyrna, they have a very different circumstance. He says, so I am the words of the, I have the words of the first and last. So he, Jesus is saying, I'm the first and the last who died and came to life. I am the beginning and the end. There's never been a time, Jesus says, when I wasn't. I wasn't born at Christmas. I became flesh at Christmas. I don't care. You can use born, but you get my point, right? I'm also eternal beginning end. There's no beginning or end to Jesus. I'm the first and the last, Jesus says, who died and came to life, and he proclaims the crucifixion and resurrection. Remember, we said this. Revelation preaches the death and resurrection over and over and over again. Every chapter is saturated with this gospel message. So who Jesus is, we'll put this note up for you. The message to each church begins with who, is, who Jesus is specifically to their individual needs. The message is rooted in who Jesus is to them particularly. And it's a lot like my first note. You just need to hear it again. That it is specific to what they're going through. He's not going to say some random aspect about who he is to someone struggling in a particular area. So he's the first and last, the eternal one, who died and came back to life. So in other words, I'm the only one who knows what's li worth living for. I have both lived and created life, but I've lived, I've died, and live again forever. I can speak authoritatively about what's important in this world. That's what he's saying to the church in Smyrna. Here's why. Verse 9. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. He's talking about, but you're spiritually rich. I know your tribulation and your poverty and the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Some strong language. I know your tribulation. Their tribulation, current. Your struggle, current, not future. Not for us in the future. He says, I know your tribulation and your poverty. Here's what's going on. You see, in Smyrna, one, Judaism was a legal religion in this era. They literally had a legal dispensation from not worshiping Caesar because they were a monotheistic one God religion. And see, at some point, when Christians left being primarily Jewish and started including non-Jewish people in the church and saying, no, you don't need to be circumcised, and yes, you can eat bacon, right? Like, important things. If you're a dude, I'm just throwing that out to both circumcision and bacon, both important, right? Just throwing that out there. The Jews pushed the Christians out of the church. See, Jews are pretty prominent in Smyrna, and they have a legal dispensation. They don't have to worship the Roman Caesar. See, in Ephesus, there was a temple given over to Julius Caesar. And likely by the time this was written, the temple to Domitian had already been erected. And so they're fighting against these cultures. And in a polytheistic, meaning many deities, many worship structures, in a polytheistic culture with a pantheon of idols that you could worship... Who cared if you worship 10 or 11? So you just throw Caesar in there. But when you're a monotheistic religion, says there's only one true God, like Judaism or Christianity, birthed out of Judaism, then 
you say, I can't worship Caesar. And so Judaism was legal. Christianity was outlawed because they would not worship the Roman emperor. This is going to be important when we get to the first beast and the second beast and the false witness. This is going to be hugely important because he goes on. He says, I know that you're, the, you're being slandered by those who say they are Jews but are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Here's what I'll tell you. Just tee this up for later. You don't get to just be wrong about the God you worship. You either worship God or you worship Satan. It's either true or it's not true. And if you were giving your worship to something else, it becomes very demonic. So Judaism, though they began with a worship of the true God, took a hard turn at Jesus and said, he is not the Messiah we've been anticipating and waiting for. And so they rejected him, had him crucified. And then they began to persecute Christianity. So Jesus literally himself calls them the synagogue of Satan. Verse 10, do not fear what you're about to suffer. Listen to this. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, meaning for their faith. And for 10 days you will have tribulation. The 10 days part right there, nothing else to this point has been literal. The church isn't a literal lampstand. It's an image that teaches about the church, right? Nothing else has been literal. No reason to shift gears. 10 days should tell you a short time. You should hear that this is a fleeting moment. You will suffer, but it won't be that long. But, he goes on, that you may be tested for 10 days, have tribulation. Be faithful unto death. Right? Behold, the devil's about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. Your faith will be tested when they lock you up and tell you, recant your faith in Jesus, worship Caesar, and we'll let you out. He says, but don't worry about it. It's a short time. This time period of your testing is short. It can't go on forever. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. As Jesus speaks to them, he says, don't fear. Be courageous. Behold, you're about to be thrown into prison. Be tested for a short time. Be faithful unto death, I'll give you the crown of life. Now, does anything here sound like this is for a future generation 2,000 years ahead of Smyrna? No, he's speaking to them, right? Here's what's going on in your church. Here's what's about to happen to you. Be faithful. Be courageous. Don't fear death. Don't fear your persecution. Don't fear jail. It's okay. I got you. You endure. I will give you the crown of life. You win in the end. Jesus says, because I win in the end. Be faithful to me. You're with me. We win in the end. This is a short life. Verse 11, he who has an ear, note the repetition. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. You can see him lean into the church specific and then zoom out to what we all need to listen to. If you have ears, he says, listen if you're deaf, learn it. So I guess I, I should learn how to sign or something. But if you have ears, that should be all of us, I hope. Hear this. It's not a literal, obviously, it's a learned church to get a hold of this truth. It has nothing to do with physical hearing, but just learn this, like immerse yourself in it. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. What does he not say? First death might hurt. That's facts. 
See, because everybody he knew had already, all his closest friends had been martyred for the faith. He'd been boiled in oil, beaten, imprisoned. They tried to kill him. Yeah, think about that boiled in oil for a minute, right? That's a fun day. The reason he's exiled on Patmos is because he didn't die. Freaked them out. Like, get rid of this guy, right? Listen, to the one who conquers, again, the call to the churches is conquers. The one who conquers this world, the one who overcomes this world. He will not be hurt by the second death. If you have ears, hear. And kind of an untasteful, didn't mean like if you don't have ears. You know what I mean. I don't mean that in a negative way. Like It doesn't have to be about auditory listening. It's like learn this. If you don't get it, go back through it. Read it again. If all who have ears hear, he says, what the Spirit says to the churches, learn from all of them because you're likely to go through different seasons of life. To the one who conquers, the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Physical death will not be the end. Physical death may hurt. It may be painless. Hopefully we all die in our sleep, right? Not tonight, but someday. But you won't be hurt forever. That's what he says. Endure, conquer. So what do we do with this? So I want to go back to Jesus' words. I want to tell you again, this is all consistent. There's nothing new here. This is all stuff Jesus has said before. It's just been condensed into a meaty book or letter called Revelation. So Matthew 24, starting in verse 9. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. Now, Jesus isn't talking to the churches now. He's talking to his disciples, his students that he is talking to that are going to become the church. They will deliver you up to tribulation, note the use of the word, and put you to death. You will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Listen, if you're hated by people because you're a jerk, that doesn't qualify as being hated for Jesus' namesake. You with me? There's a distinction there. Okay, just curious. If you're hated because you're a political party, not what he's talking about, I promise. Okay. And then many will fall away. People will fall away, he says. Many. And betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. Consider Smyrna. In fact, Ephesus and Smyrna both battled false teachers. But consider the tribulation and death that Jesus just spoke to this little, kind of small, not very powerful, but weak kind of church in Smyrna. Next passage, Matthew 24, is just the next verses. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. Sound like Ephesus? This is 65 years earlier. And because of lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Notice that call to endure has not changed. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. That's it. No charts and graphs. No craziness. No up and back and head fake. No, none of that. You're going to suffer. It's worth it. The gospel's going to go to the world because of you. And then the end. Those who endure will see me forever. So what do we do with this? I took two things. Here's the first one. Don't look beyond our own lives. As we're reading Revelation, don't look beyond our own lives. 
What Jesus said to the disciples came true in their lifetime. Same thing to the churches, Ephesus and Smyrna. Don't, we don't have to look future. Don't look beyond our own lives thinking suffering and tribulation is for others. Our call is to be faithful. Sorry for the typo. Be faithful. Our call is to faithful. No, it's no typo. I just can't read. To faithful endurance to the end. We don't need to think about something in the future. We need to endure today. Ours is pretty light. We live in a place where Christianity is legal. And I think it makes us soft instead of strong. Endure. The call to endure. Maybe it makes us unloving. Second note, we endure for a greater purpose. Jesus calls the faithful to endure hardship so that others can see Jesus through our lives. Do we love God and love our neighbors enough to endure? Can we face the struggles in this world of living countercultural to this world? Can we live as outsiders instead of living like we belong here? Can we live in such a unique and different way that others see Jesus no matter what the cost is to us? Does our love for God and our love for others drive us to remain in the fire so that people can see Jesus? You see, it should. So don't push this book off to something that happens later. It's written for the present. To the churches struggling and enduring in the present. To us in the present, whether that's for a loss of love or for a suffering and trial. Again, if you read this passage and you were on the other side of the planet where they're killing Christians right now in places, small islands in the Philippines or on the continent of Africa where they're executing Christians to this day, China and the underground church, you would read this passage as for your life today. If it's true for them, it's true for us. It's for our life today. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. How can we not love you? You entered into this broken world to live a different way. To become a sacrifice for us. To live perfectly on our behalf. Not just to say you can do it and we didn't, but to give that victory to us. Jesus, you died on a cross. You suffered and bled for me, for us. Not for nameless, faceless people, but for your church, your bride. So that we could be different. So that we could live a life in response to the gospel, being different. Empowered by your spirit, not even our own strength, but just to be different. And it is because of you that we're here today. There is nothing we have that is not because of you. So Jesus, we love you. If you call us to endure suffering, let us suffer. If you call us to be loving, let us be loving. If you call us to change, to turn, to be anything that you call us to be, let us be empowered to do so. You loved us first. That's why we're in the room. You met us where we were in sin, and you transformed our hearts so that we could respond to you. I thank you for that. Today, I pray for Caitlin, Lord, as we get to baptize her today. So privileged to be a part of that in the church. Let her forever be changed, as I know she already is. And let us remember from where we have fallen that we might turn our lives and do the things we did at first, as you called Ephesus to. If that means suffer, that we would endure to the end, Jesus. You did, so we can. Jesus, we love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.